Sleeping there? You played the wrong clip. I swear, if you weren't my nephew, I would have already kicked your ass to the fuck. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Welcome back to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I am your host and beloved YouTube influencer, Don DiMuccio. My sincerest apologies for the technical glitches at the start of the show. And on a related note, if you have experience in radio production and are willing to work for hugs, send me an email. And please, no scrubs. If you're like me and you grew up in the 1980s listening to rock radio before it was considered classic, you couldn't go two hours without hearing one of the many top 20 hits from Foreigner. And much of Foreigner's success was due to the powerful vocals behind the music, thanks to Rochester's favorite son, Lou Graham. Now, many of you might already know that he survived brain surgery to remove what was initially thought to be an inoperable tumor. But that's just the tip of the iceberg to Lou's story, which he recounts in the following interview with uncanny detail and an often brutal honesty regarding both Foreigner's past and present, as well as his own musical future. And one cool footnote, just three days after Lou and I talked, it was announced that Foreigner was finally nominated for induction into this year's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'd like to think I had something to do with that. I mean, I didn't, but I'd like to think it.
Today's guest was the lead singer of one of the most successful hard rock bands of all time, Foreigner. Having sold more than 80 million records worldwide since their inception in 1976, he and founding member Mick Jones served as the group's primary songwriters, yielding huge top 20 radio hits like Cold as Ice, Blue Morning, Blue Day, Double Vision, Jukebox Hero, and their 1984 number one classic, I Want to Know What Love Is. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame and a true rock and roll survivor in every sense of the word, Lou Graham. Good morning, Lou. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for doing the show for us. My pleasure. Now, I understand you're speaking to us from the road. How's the tour going? I'm actually at home right now. Oh, you are at home. Okay. Yes. Now, did I hear that this is going to be your last tour? It is going to be my last tour, yes. Why? Well, because uh, I've been doing it for over 40 years, and I think it's time to uh, to take the mic and the cord and hang it up. Uh, I mean, I'll still be writing songs and recording, right? but, I, but I, I've kind of had enough of the road now. You know? What about the music business itself? I mean... Last night was the Grammy Awards. Me personally, I don't recognize but two people who are on the show. Uh, I didn't even watch it because it was the same last year. Yeah. So, so I, I, did, I did not bother. Clearly, the entire scene has changed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the business has changed, too, you know. The, the record companies have changed. The, the, uh, when I used to go to Atlantic in, in New York, it was seven or eight floors of business being done on behalf of the record company. Right. I believe it might be two floors now. That's sad. And back then, getting a record deal was the ultimate goal. Yes, it sure was. And now it's like a kiss of death in some ways. Yeah, I think people would rather just sell their own music their own way. Absolutely. I want to talk about your really early days. Young Lou running around Rochester, New York in the late 50s and early 60s. Mm-hmm. Came from a family of professional musicians. Well, not, not exactly professional. My, my, my dad um, was a trumpet player, and in his junior year of high school, he, he formed a big band. And uh, they used to play at uh, school events and, and uh, community events and things like that. And he needed a singer, and he auditioned a bunch of singers. And my mom was one of the singers, and, and she just happened to get the job. Wow. And his heroes were, were Sonny Stitt and Harry James. Sure. I heard a lot of music growing up. He, he had his favorite uh, big band stations. He worked a lot, but when he was home on Saturday and Sunday, that's what we heard around the house. And I got to I got to enjoy it quite a bit. What was your record collection like as a kid? Mine was not huge, but substantial and and full of things that I liked. Which was um, Free, Humble Pie, Spooky Tooth, definitely the Beatles. Oh yeah, and, and uh, the Zombies, the Animals, you know, a lot of first wave stuff. Do you remember the first single you ever bought? Yes, uh, Louis Louie by the Kingsmen. You know that, don't you? Of course. Of course. Huge controversy at the time, too. Yes, it was. It got, it got banned on some stations, but, but other places it got bigger. Yeah, they actually had the FBI looking to them. I mean, imagine being a bunch of kids, really, and being accused of God knows what. what suggestive words? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't out-and-out slut. It was very suggestive, though. If you, if you believe that, I don't know. Did we ever get to the bottom of that? If it was just a bad rumor that was, you know, a bunch of kids kind of spread? Well, I, I, I remember, uh, I think the beginning of the second verse was, every night at 10, I lay her again. She's just a girl across the way. Yep, yep. I, I thought that was very cool. I mean, of really course. suggestive. And, and I never heard anybody put those kind of thoughts so upfront in, in music. And the song was good, too. Oh, yeah. Did you go to a lot of shows, a lot of concerts? When I was finally able to get out of the house, you know, at about 14 or 15, my, my first concert was uh, the Rolling Stones in Rochester in 1965. I heard there's an interesting story around that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had friends who were going, and, and I, I intended to go. And at the dinner table of the night of the concert, that's when I, I dropped it on my parents' <laughs> uh, I says, I've got friends who are going to Rolling Stones. I'd like to go, too. And they looked at each other, and they said, not a chance. <laughs> I said, please, let me go. I, I'm, I'm old enough. I'll, I'll be careful. I'll be home on time, and blah, 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 blah. And they said, no. And I started trying again, and they sent me to my room, which is exactly where I wanted to go, because I got dressed in, in my British stompers <laughs> and my Madras shirt with my tight jeans, and I ran down the stairs out the front door, and ran down the street, and as I'm running down the street, I can I could hear in the background, Lois, 
I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I got to uh, uh, one of the main busy streets and I started hitchhiking. The first car came by, had about four or five people also going to the concert, and I got my ride. Wow. And, yeah, and I, I met three or four friends there. Uh, there was a, a girl that I had a crush on that was there, and she was very cute. She had her hair done just like Brian Jones. <laughs> and uh, so we went inside the concert, and the stones sounded great, actually. And uh, the Rochester War Memorial, which had horrible acoustics, but they sounded great. Yeah. You know, it's just that kind of music. Yeah. And uh, about two-thirds of the way through their set, the uh, chief of police and two policemen walked up the steps onto the stage and and blew off the stones in the middle of a song, made them stop. And they were indignant, boy. I bet. And, and he walks right, the chief of police walks right up and grabs Jagger's mic off the stand and comes forward towards the front of the stage. And he says, um, you know, he says, I, I bring this big popular group here for you people. And I thought you would behave like ladies and gentlemen, but... He, sa he says, you're going wild. You're, you're ruining the show for everybody. And all of a sudden, uh, I, I'm, I look up and the spotlight's on him. You know, they got a spotlight they were using for the stones. It was yeah. on the chief of police. And I could see something coming towards him in the spotlight. And I realized what it was. It was a pack of gum. It was twirling end over end. Yeah. Somebody threw it from the balcony. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it hits him in the eye. Shit. And he goes backwards. And the, the other policeman catch him before he hits the floor. And he gets up, and that eye's bleeding. Oh. You know, because the corners yeah. of those old packs of gums were, were, you know? Yeah. And he takes the mic again, and he goes, this show's over. And the stones are going crazy. They they don't want to stop. You know, that has not never happened to them before, and blah, 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 blah. And, and uh, all the house lights go on. The electricity on the stage goes off, so nobody's amps and guitars worked, and and uh, people were stunned, you know? Of course. So my friend, her name was Kathy Evans, she knew where the back door was at the War Memorial, and we, there were, I think there were four of us, we, five of us maybe, we, we found that door and we went out into a alleyway where there were two big black limos waiting. So the manager and, and some of the band gets in one and uh, the rest of the band gets in the other. And the last one in the band to get in the, to get in the, the limo was Brian Jones. And that was her hero. That's why she had her hair done. Like yeah. That. And uh, as he gets in the car, she breaks through the police line and runs up and jumps, puts her feet on the bumper, and she's laying on the trunk. And when the limo driver pulls away, the car kind of humps back. And she goes off the back of the trunk on her back, and she hits her head onto the ground. Ooh. And the car suddenly stops, and the door opens, and Brian Jones gets out and runs towards her and, and helps her up. And she's, she's a little woozy, but suddenly she's in heaven and uh, gives her a kiss and helps her to her feet, brushes her off, and, and says a few things to her, you know. And, and then he proceeds to get back in the car, and they take off, and her night will never be the same sure so we go back to her house and her parents just happened to be out of town and we started drinking and smoking pot and this and that you know i, I took a big chance leaving the house to go see the stones especially if my parents told me not to leave the house and they didn't want me seeing the stones yeah so by the time by the time we were done hanging out and partying and stuff i looked at my watch and it was quarter after two. Oh, jeez and I realized that I had no way of getting home, nor did I have the money to catch a cab. So all, Kathy and all her friends, they didn't have that much money either, but they all took the change, and the, the, a few of them had $1 bills in their pockets, and they put it on the table, and we figured out I had $7.55, and they called a cab. Now, I didn't live right in Rochester. I lived outside of Rochester in the town of Gates. Mm-hmm. So the cab driver was driving me towards my home, and uh, there was a bowling alley called the Gates Bowl. And as we went by the Gates Bowl, I looked at the meter, and the meter clicked on to the exact amount I had. And we still had about another two minutes of driving to do. So by the time the cab driver stops in front of my house, I owed him another dollar and a half besides all the money I had. Yeah. So I, I took all the change and the dollar bills out of my pocket and cupped them in my hands. And I said, this is all I got, sir. And he looks at me and he, he kind of puts his head down and shakes his head. And he goes, go on, get out of here. 
Wow. So, so he wouldn't wouldn't even take my money, and he lets me off. I thanked him profusely. Sure. I, I run across the lawn to my front door. I'm about to put my key in, and I turn the door handle, and it opens. So it wasn't locked. I come in, I shut the door, and I lock it. And it's it's pitch black in there. And uh, I head towards the stairs. I take one step onto the stairs, and the lamp in the living room comes on. I turn around right away, and my father's sitting there. And it looks like he had fallen asleep because he was a little groggy, but he's very angry. And he says, have a good time, Lou. I says, Dad, I, I can't begin to tell you. It, it was an awesome time. You know? <laughs> I says, with my friends, seeing seeing this, this awesome band. I said, the place was packed. It was really a lot of fun. He goes, well, I hope so. He says, because you're grounded for the next three months. And I, and I go, what? He goes, you know, your mother and I didn't want you to go to that concert for a number of reasons. And you defied us. And you went anyways. I hope you had a good time, but you're not going to be going anyplace for a while. And I says, oh, Dad, really? And he says, you heard me, Lou. Up the stairs. I says, Dad, you really going to do this? And he says, up the stairs, Lou. So, so I went up the stairs. I went in my room. I shut the door. And I had a big smile on my face. I had all I could do to keep from from shouting something. And I was so happy that, that I didn't get the shit kicked out of me. Yeah, right. His father gave him a barber strap, the kind of barber straps that they used to sharpen the straight yeah. razors with. Yeah. And if you bend those straps, the grain in the strap looks like sharp shark's teeth. They kind of stick out and point. Yes. And, and when he used to hit us with that, it used to leave huge welts and it would blister up right away from one hit. Sure. It looked ugly and it hurt like hell for for two, three days. And then it would turn black and blue after that. So we really feared that barber strap. And, and any chance he would leave it around, we would get it and hide it on him. Were you a uh, regular beneficiary of that strap? On a regular basis, oh. yes. You know, and people hearing this of a certain age may think, oh, that's terrible. That's the way things were then. So we think that, that, that's the way things were for him when he was growing up. And, and his father gave him the strap. How appropriate, you know? How appropriate. Yep. So my brothers and I all got hit, and when my dad used to hit them, they were crying, no, no more, dad, no more. And and then, then he'd come in my room, he'd get ready to hit me, he'd roll up his sleeve and take the strap, he'd get ready to hit me, and I'd start to bite the inside of my mouth to fight back the pain when he hit me. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't going to give him any facial expression, there was going to be no tears, mm -hmm. no whining, no nothing. So he would hit me, and I would just be staring at him, and he'd hit me harder, he'd go, cry, damn you. And I wouldn't give him the satisfaction. Wow. Finally, he would leave in big frustration. And then, then I'd go to the bathroom and spit out a mouthful of blood. I bet. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a tough relationship with your dad? Not particularly. He, he had his ways. You know, he yeah. wasn't particularly violent. He wasn't uh, real quick to pick up something and hit us. He, he wasn't like that at all. Okay. But, but, but when we pushed him to the limit, he, he went for that strap. Did he get to see you successful? Yes, he did. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, I have a picture of my mom and my dad at the Rochester War Memorial with the original band and our management around us. That's it's great. an awesome, awesome picture. That's very cool. Yep. Now, you were a drummer at first. I was, yeah. I started playing uh, um, snare drum when I was eight years old. I, I, was, in, I was in the uh, junior high school band. And then when I got into high school, I was in the, the, the Gates Chile Marching Band. And, and around that time, I also got my first set of drums. My dad's brother had a 1938 set of Gretsch drums. It had a 38-inch bass drum. The, 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 um, the tom-toms didn't have legs. 38-inch yeah, bass drum? Huge. My huge. God. Yeah, and it, the the tom toms clipped to the rim of the bass drum. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. They had no stands or anything, right. and 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 the cymbal stand clipped to the bass drum. It, it was it was old. It was not mother of pearl. It was it was painted blue with a silver stripe down the middle. Wow. Uh, and and uh, my uncle played them for a couple years, and they've been sitting in his basement for for thirty five years or so. So my dad paid $25 for the whole set, and, and we took them home and set them up. That was my first set of drums. I mean, I'm a drummer. I've been a professional drummer for years, and i got to tell you, those old kits, you can't. I mean, you just you can't beat them. Calfskin heads. Oh, yeah. How about the cymbals? Yep. 
Oh, they sound, they sounded like tops of saucepans. <laughs> but it was my first set of drums, and, and you know, I, I was aware that, that they didn't sound great like the drums I hear on records, but I was I was happy to have a set of drums, and, and I learned how to play on that. Sure. Did you give them up before you uh, joined Black Sheep? No, I, I was the, originally I was the drummer and the singer in Black Sheep. This is something that always intrigues me. You sang and played drums. That's almost yes, like, did. That's like what they say, uh, patting your stomach and your head at the same time. It's, it's almost impossible. Well, no, Don Henley did it. I know, I know. That's why my hat is off to anybody who can do it. I've tried it. and it. The, the, the toughest thing for me was putting across the emotion in a song from playing in the back of the band and having no eye contact with anybody. True, yeah. So we auditioned two or three singers who who just couldn't grasp what we were doing, and as hard as we tried, weren't able to execute the original songs. So then one day we came to practice, and and uh, one of the guys said, "My friend turned me on to a really good drummer who I heard last night. He's very good." And I hadn't really thought of that as an option, but it suddenly. You know, I love playing drums, but it sounded intriguing to me because then if we had a good drummer, I could be in the front of the band putting the emotion of the song right in the face of the audience. And so I went for it. And I want to talk about Black Sheep a little bit because they deserve more than just a rock and roll footnote. This was a very well-received band. It was a good band, boy. Did you hear the albums ever? I did. A lot of the bands were blues-based, but because of your voice, it was more of a soul-based rock band. Mm -hmm. You, You were right on the money. And you did a single for Chrysalis. Yeah, uh, Chrysalis was just ready to set up headquarters in North America, in, in Los Angeles, in New York, and Nashville. That's what the deal was. So we were their first American act signed. Yep. And we, we put out a single called Stick Around. It was a good rock song. And, and we waited and we waited, wondering when we were going to record the rest of the album. Finally, we heard from Chrysalis that they changed their mind. They weren't going to have any offices in the States. They were just going to stay a European label. And we asked for our release. Mm. How and soon then, after did Capital come? Um, maybe three months, three, four months. Oh, so it wasn't that bad. We, yeah. No, we, we were doing a show in Syracuse opening for Procol Harum. And uh, there were some... I don't know why, maybe Procol Harum was in the midst of changing labels too, but uh, they, they were at the show and, and they, they liked what they heard and negotiations started. That's great. Yeah, it was a great break. I mean, that came out of nowhere. This is 1973, 74? Yes, it is. In that yeah. period? Who were some of the bands that you guys opened up for at that point? Um, Aerosmith, 10 years after. Ted Nugent. Yep. Yeah, we 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 uh, we did the Agoras. Do you know what they are? No, I don't. They, they are a group of rock and roll theater clubs. Uh, they had one Columbus, Cleveland, uh, I think Akron. They, they they were basically through some of the cities in Chicago. Okay. They were theaters. They were concert clubs. You know, they served finger foods and drinks. Uh, but but there there were some tables on the outside of the venue, uh, in, on the outside of the concert area. Uh, but every everything else, people could stand, and they did. They were old theaters. They sounded good. They made some some changes to improve the acoustics, and they they were really popular back in the late '60s and mid '70s. If you were on the Agora circuit, you were bubbling under to make it. I never heard of that. That's interesting. Yep. Yeah, so we played with a lot of different bands there. We also played uh, Cowtown Ballroom. That was like an Agora, only it was in Kansas City. Same blueprint. So we were playing concert clubs. You guys make it out to Boston at all? We did. You know, well, in Boston, we played at a bar in Boston. I cannot remember the name of it, but it was kind of dumpy. <laughs> but it was it was it was a real hot spot. The place was packed all the time, and we would play. We would play weeks there. We'd play a week. We'd be gone two weeks. We'd come back for another week. And where we stayed was he had a, an old house next door to the bar. And he says, if you guys trying to save some money, you don't want to spend it on a hotel, he says, you can stay at my house. And we were like, oh, great. Yeah. So we went in the house, and it looked like they tore the covering of the walls off. It was just the two-by-fours framed in and the outside walls. No insulation, no nothing. This was in November and December, so at night we were freezing, freezing in there. 
Sorry, so it was probably fall because the windows weren't good either. And I remember being asleep and hearing <laughs> So the bees were too cold and they found their way inside the house oh. a little bit warmer. Oh, jeez. Right? Yeah. We had no money for food, so we used to put a little of the money we made, which was not much, and we'd go to the store and we'd get the big cans of soup that they use for schools to buy. Yeah, right, those industrial size. Uh, Yeah, they're like gallon jugs of soup. And we'd put some meat in them. We'd we'd doll them up so they were more like a big stew than soup. Yeah. And we'd buy some fresh Italian bread, and, and that was dinner. You know, that's the life that the kids today, the kids today, don't understand. No, not at all. That passion it's, for what you're doing, the sacrifice. I, I don't. I honestly don't think that many of them would put themselves through that today. No, they'd go. Oh, that I got to do that. Now I'll find something else to do. Exactly. So how about this? Our, our, our drummer, he was a nut. He had a brand new 1973 Vega GT. Do you remember those at all? Not a car. Little car. Little car that Chevy put out. Okay. They had four cylinders, but they were. Beefed up four cylinders. They, they had uh, 135, 140 horse. Yep. They looked nice, and they were a small version of a muscle car. Okay. So that's what our drummer had. And he, he was a nut on the New York State Thruway and, and uh, what were they called? Massachusetts Turnpike, right? Yep. I would be in the other car, and, and we'd go by him, and I hear, and, and I, I turn to the rest of the guys and says, he's driving 70 miles an hour. He's got his car in third gear. So he'd put it in third, and he'd drive it that fast, revving that high, because he'd forget to put it in fourth. So one time we were on our way to Boston, and he blew the motor on the highway. Shit. And we had to go off the highway and have it towed to a gas station. And after we did our week or two weeks in Boston, on the way back, we had a flatbed pick it up. He was a nut. I mean, if he knew anything about driving, that would never happen. He, he was... Very spacey guy. Well, speaking about driving and on the tour, you guys were opening for Kiss, and uh, what happened? Um, it was our first show with Kiss. It was at the Boston Armory. Oh, Boston Music Hall. Sorry, that's what it was called. And, and I think it was an armory. So we got a standing ovation, and we were starting to leave the stage, and I said to Kiss's tour manager, can we answer our encore? And he says, yeah, go do another one. So we went right back on stage and played one more song, and we got another encore. Uh, we didn't push our luck. We just went off stage after that. Yeah. And we, we stayed, we cleaned up, and we ran out into the audience and found seats, and we stayed and watched Kiss, and they were great. It was, a, it was an awesome concert, and people were going crazy. We felt honored to get a standing O from Kiss's audience, you know? Yeah. So the guys in the band, we had a big old Pontiac Catalina station wagon. We got in that, and we started driving home. It was Christmas Eve, 1975. I got home, and I had my girlfriend, who later became my wife. We had an apartment. I jumped into bed probably around 3 o'clock. And around quarter to 5, I got a call from one of the crew guys who said that they were near Albany, and they hit a patch of ice, and the truck slid off the throughway and rolled over. And he says they were banged up, cuts and bruises, but they were okay. But the truck box doesn't look so good, and they can't get the door open to assess the damage. So they got a truck wrecker to come in and pick the truck up and take it off the throughway into a little town, they said. And they put it in a gas station, which was closed. And so that's where the truck was, and that's where they were with no way of getting home. So I called the bass player, and we, we got the band wagon, and we drove all the way back to Albany to pick them up. And we saw the truck. We tried to open the door. It went up about a foot, and it was jammed. So we took all took the rest of the guys home. We had a good Christmas, but the next morning, real early, we were on our way back to where the truck was because we had to see how bad the damage was to the truck, assess it, and see what was left of the equipment. Yeah. Well, we asked the guys at the gas station to help us, and they got the door open for us. And um, the Marshall bottoms were all smashed in. The speakers were smashed, and a lot of the casings were cracked at the seams. Uh, the Hammond B3 had the legs torn out from, from underneath it. Oh. The drums were in hard shell cases, but the cases were crushed, and the drums were, were splintered. They were, done. they were done. Okay. You know, that, that was about it, but, you know, various other things, too. So we were supposed to leave for Florida for our next KISS show. 
the band when we got back to Russia, we talked to our parents about seeing if they could pitch in a little money and we'd get a smaller truck with less equipment and go to Florida with that just so we could honor our responsibility and keep the possibility of promoting our albums. Can I just stop you for a second? You're asking your parents, yep. well, where the hell's the record company? Well, when we told Kiss's tour manager what happened, yeah. uh, uh, they said, why don't you ask the record company? You know, I told them about the, my parents. Right. They said, why don't you ask the record company? You know, they've already got a lot of money sunk into you. I would think they'd want to help. So we told the record company about what happened to us, and we, we were anxious to fulfill our obligation to promote the album so we can all make a little money on it. You know, yeah, it's only going to help we them. Real, yeah, we realized we realized that they already had money put in for the recording, and there's a lot, potentially a lot of money on the table. Yeah, and they said, uh, "Okay, we'll get back to you." And they got back to us the next day. They dropped us from the label. These sons of bitches. Yep. Wow. And, and uh, uh, they obviously wouldn't give us a nickel, and they dropped us from the label. So we were without any help. There was no insurance on that gear. Yes, yes, there was insurance on it. Right. The insurance check came in April. Oh. Okay. So I called Kiss's tour manager to, to tell him that we were not going to be able to fulfill our obligation. And he, he felt bad because he, he liked the band and, and liked us as a bunch of guys, too. So that was it. Then Black Sheep started having meetings once a week at our drummer's house. He lived out in Albion, New York. He had a, a house with four or five acres and a big barn. So we used to go in the barn and meet and try and come up with ideas of what we can do. Yeah. And uh, one idea was that we could buy small amps and, you know, a stripped down drum set and a couple column speakers and start doing clubs again. And nobody liked that idea at all. I bet. And uh, so we would meet once a week to toss around ideas of what we could do. And the meetings were getting shorter and shorter because we just couldn't come up with anything. So during one of the meetings, my dad called me and said, there's this guy, Mick Jones, that keeps calling. He, he wants you to call him back. He says, do you know him? I says, no. I says, oh, yeah, I did, I did meet him once. So I said, okay. So after we were done with the black sheet meeting, I went home and I, and I called him. I told him what happened, and he, you know, he said he felt real bad. He says, well, he says, I'm not with Spooky Tooth anymore. He says, he says, I'm on my own. I've got backing from, from a manager that has a substantial amount of money. We have a rehearsal place. We have connections with record labels. We can even get recording fees really cheap. He says, um, I'm wondering if you would consider coming in to New York and auditioning for the band. He says, I have most of the band together. I'm still looking for a keyboard player or something, but yeah, he had most of the band together. And and I says, you know, Mick, I, I appreciate the call. It, it's very interesting. I'm sure it's going to turn out good, but my loyalty still lies with my band. And until there comes a solution to that, for yeah. better or worse, uh, I says, I, I can't make a move. I said, I won't make a move. There was kind of silence in the phone. He goes, he says, you know, I understand that. He says, maybe more than a lot of people would. Hmm. He says, at any, any rate, I'll call you in about a month or six weeks and, and see where you are. I says, okay. So I went back to the guys in Black Sheep and told them that Mick called and wanted me to come in for an audition. And they said, what did you say? I says, I told them no, because I have a band already. And they said, no, you must have the sense of reality that, that this band is over. Why don't you see what you can do for yourself? We wouldn't feel bad. We encourage you to do it. You know, this is this is all well and good, talking about small amps and playing clubs and all that stuff again. But if you have an opportunity like this in front of you, you don't need to have loyalty to us. You've shown your loyalty for, for four or five years. Give, give yourself a chance. That's a great bunch of guys. Yep. To see it that way. And times has been tough for you financially. Yes, very much so. So Mick called me back about two, three weeks later, and and I told him I would come down. So I, I went down. They were in a recording studio. They had already laid down three or four tracks, songs that Mick had written. Now, let me just ask you, was it the other five guys at this point? Um, it was Dennis. Yep. It was Al, okay. the keyboard player. Yep, Al Greenwood. Yeah. It was Ed Gagliardi, but there was no drummer. Oh, no, there, Dennis was the drummer, sorry. There there was no... Was Ian. he in there? Yeah, no, Ian wasn't there. Okay. That, that's who was missing. Yep. 
But we worked on Feels Like the First Time. We worked on At War with the World and a couple other songs. Mick had the words written out. He would play me the music at a, at a soft volume in, in the control room. Yeah. And he would sing me the words and the melody. So I kind of get the idea what the song was, was about. Right. And then I would go out there and sing it and we would massage it till it sounded good. And so we had, I think, three or four songs that I had sung to. And now that's supposed to be an audition. But you know what they did with those songs? What? Those were the songs they, they sent out to the record companies to garner interest. So apparently the singing must have been good enough where, where they didn't need to do it again. They thought it was good enough to, to send right out. And I was going to say, too, it should be known that the whole reason that Mick called you in the first place was because you had given him a copy of your band's album. The Black Sheep album. At, what was that? A Spooky Tooth concert, right? That's correct, yeah. So clearly he could hear what was going on. Oh, he had a good ear for that stuff. Very good. Yeah. Now, they were called Trigger at the time, right? Well, they weren't called anything, but after we got together and started to rehearse, Mick came up with Trigger. And uh, I said, Trigger? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? I said, isn't that Roy Rogers' horse? And everybody started laughing. You know? And wasn't there some A&R guy when he saw your demo tape, he was confusing with another band, and it almost cost you the, the whole deal? Oh, I'm not sure I remember that. Yeah, I saw that in a documentary years ago. Thought that, we were somebody else? Yep. That there was a band huh. in New York called Trigger, and he's like, oh, I don't want it. They're terrible. I saw them live. And oh, okay. So the, the, it was the Trigger thing, right? Right. Because oh, the demo yeah. tape said Trigger. That's all it said on it. Then he pops the tape in, and is blown away, because it was really Florida. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before, but it sounds vaguely familiar. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. How long from those rehearsals to getting signed? Very shortly thereafter. Uh, uh because we had auditioned for Atlantic already, and they said they thought we were good, but they weren't ready to sign us now. And when they left, John Kaladna, the A&R guy, stayed behind and, and told us that he thought the songs were great, but they were all about four minutes and 50 seconds or five and a half minutes. He says, nobody has the patience to listen to a song like that if, if, if they're thinking singles, you know. He says, we're thinking singles, they got to be three minutes or maybe just a little bit over. He said, these five-minute songs, he says, we have to edit the wool out of them and, and make them more concise. And that's what we did. We took the, the three or four songs that we had worked on and chopped some, some of the, the fluff out of them yeah. and made them into to three minute and 15 seconds, very concise, in-your-face rock records. And then Atlantic came back and, and heard heard the, the new versions of those songs, and they brought a contract with them. Interesting that in the era of album-oriented rock, um, you guys were thinking singles. That's smart. Well, the, you, you know, the long songs would always be long songs, and, and you could you could put the long version on the record and just release the edited version. True, you know? yeah, true. You know, there are very few bands that are made up of both members who are established in the business and they kind of bring that experience to the table. And then you get the relative newcomers who bring that unjaded excitement and energy, you know? And off the top of my head, well, I can only think of two bands, you guys and Led Zeppelin. Right. How much of that dynamic do you think contributed to Foreigner taking off as big as it did? Possibly some of that, yeah. I, I would think that there was definitely uh, some rub-off there, for sure. You know, Foreigner was three Brits, three Americans, and uh, the Brits had most of the experience out of the Americans, I had all the experience. That's true. Yeah. I already had a contract with Chrysalis and, and two albums on Capitol. And the other Americans that I were with played in top 40 bands. Good players, you yep. know, very creative guys, but, yep. but no success among them. Where, where the British guys, uh, I mean, Ian played with the King Crimson. Oh, yeah. Mick played with Spooky Tooth, Leslie West, and, and uh, jo Johnny... Uh, the, the French Elvis, what's his name? Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. That's gone way back. Yeah, yes, it is. And Dennis played with uh, If and the Ian Hunter Band. So there's a lot of experience in, in the British portion of the band. Sure. I'm sure it didn't take long before Mick started regaling you with stories of him hanging out with the Beatles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would goad him to tell me more. You know, I love those stories. Yeah. Of course, yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. He, he actually, you know, he, he was playing with... Uh, some guy's name in the French French Elvis Johnny Johnny Halliday. Yep. So he'd be telling us about playing with Johnny Halliday, and, and the Beatles would come in to catch the last five minutes of the show. And when Mick was done, the Beatles first they started talking. They started speaking French to him, and Mick talked 
British back to, to them. And they said, hey, he's one of us. You know, and, and, and then they started taking Mick around to their shows. And Mick was the fifth Beatle playing on a lot of their shows. That's cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting zoomed away in limos and, you know, off to crazy parties with drugs and women and all that stuff. He says he thought he was in heaven. I'm sure. Did you ever get to yep. meet any of the Beatles? I did. Uh, uh, when I was recording my first Black Sheep album at, at the record plant, in the studio next door to me was John Lennon. He was recording his album with um, Phil Spector. Oh, the rock and roll album. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was a break room that had uh, a coffee pot and a table and two chairs and and a pool table. So I was doing vocals and I was getting a little scratchy. I needed a rest. So they said, go go take 15 or 20 minutes in the break room. I walked in there and John was was just shooting pool by himself. He says, hey, what's your name? I said, my name is Louis. He says, I'm John. He says, you want to shoot some pool? I says, I'm not very good. He says, yeah, me neither. He says, it'll be fun. So we did it. We talked. He told me what he was doing there and I told him what I was doing there. And we, we uh, shot pool and talked for about 20, 20 minutes, half an hour. And then uh, he says, I got to get back. And I says, me too. He says, nice talking to you. Good luck. Wow. When you're a fan, that's like incredible. Huge, huge. Yeah, I know. I couldn't believe it. That's couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And from all accounts, he was the real deal, you know? Yes. And he was the real deal. And, and, and uh, I could tell the minute I started talking to him that, that I was going to like that about him. Do you remember where you were when you heard he got killed? I was driving down the West Side Highway. I was driving down. Uh, uh, so, sorry. Is that West Side Highway? Yeah, I think it was the West Side Highway. And I had the radio on, but I had the volume turned down. And all of a sudden, I saw fire trucks and police cars and ambulances, lots of them, and they were all coming the other way. And then they turned in front of me to go to the east side of Manhattan. And I said, what the fuck is going on here? I turned the radio on, and the first thing I heard is John Lennon has been killed. And for the rest of the the drive home, I was crying my eyes out. I just couldn't stop. Yeah? Yep. Um, In the same way that John and Paul had a volatile relationship, yet they were brothers... You and Mick, you know, you read these things sometimes in the rock press and they get oversimplified. But what is the truth about the dynamic between you guys? We were friendly, but we never were close. Okay. Our collaborations were mostly his ideas and my part of the collaboration. He would use me for what he needed to use me for. And that was it. Do you know that on I Want to Know What Love Is, I worked with him for maybe two or three weeks on just that song. Sure. And there were ideas coming out all over the place. I knew that I had soul. I had quite a bit of me in that song. When the choir came to the studio, Mick was working with the choir and I hadn't done my final vocal yet. So I went to the, to the little studio in the, in the same company, but the, the little studio next door yeah. with an engineer. And I sang my lead vocals for I Want to Know What Love Is without Mick like a mother hen over me telling me, change this, do it this way, do it that way, you know? That's what he usually would do. Yeah. But I, I did the whole song by myself the way I would want to hear it. And when I was done, I came back to the other studio where he was still working with the choir. And he looked at me and I said, it's done. And, and he just looked away towards the choir again and didn't even listen to it for another day or two. Really? And that was, that was his baby. You'd, th- you'd think he'd, if I said it was done, he'd, he'd want to listen and listen again and listen again and change stuff. You know, but he didn't say a thing. And he never did. He also never said, good job, Lou. Well, it gets even worse than that. I know there was an issue with royalties. Yep. So when albums are done, we... We would uh, have a little post-it note pad, and we would go through each song, and he would say, what do you think the split should be? So, you know, on things like Hot Blooded and stuff like that, it was easy. It was 50-50. Double Vision, 60-40. Blue Morning, Blue Day was 65-35. You know, it was was pretty easy. I I, kind of knew what the splits were, and I felt I was pretty honest about it. Yeah. So for I Want to Know What Love Is, I put... 60% 60% Mick, 40% me. Okay. So he turned over my, my paper and saw that and, and gave me a funny look. And I turned over his, and it was 90-10 for him. <laughs> After all, I, I worked with him on that song for at least two months 
getting the song structure, the melody down, the the words building to the climax, and and singing the chorus with with that church feel to it. Sure, I uh, put, put a lot of myself into that song. He wrote the chords. Yes, he did. He was the impetus for the song. Yes, he was. But but as soon as we started to get going, I was I was right there. And so so to see ninety ten just blew me away. I tried not to get angry, but I was angry. I didn't say anything to let on that I was angry, but I was angry. So I said, you know what, Mick? I said, if that's what you think my worth is on that song, I said, seems to me, and it has always seemed to me since we've been working on this, that you want that song for yourself. He didn't say yes or no. He didn't answer. Mm. So I said, you keep it, Mick. I know you want it. So I says, I'll bow out. Song's all yours. So then management came back and said, Mick doesn't want that. Mick thinks you have input in the song and, and is willing to give you a piece of it. I said, he doesn't seem to be willing to give me anything near what I did put into it. Right. Well, he's got one more offer to make you. You know what his final offer was? What? 95-5. What is he being a 95% wait, for wait. him and 5% for him. It was 90-10 Yeah, and, 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 and they were coming to me like he saw the light and he was going to give you a, a, a fair split. Well, it got worse. 95-5. I says, I don't want to talk about it. It's your song. So basically he it. said, fuck you. Yes, he did. And that song says, and to be honest with you, he's made almost $6 million off of that song in, in publishing and in, in ASCAP, in sales. Right. There's been three other women that have had number one songs with that song, you know? And, and uh, I'm not even mentioned anywhere on it. That's insane. Yeah, it's insane, and that was the end of the relationship between him and I, because because the next thing we worked on was, well, that was on the Agent Provocateur album. Right. The next one we worked on was, I can't try to think what the name of the album was. Was it Inside Information? Inside Information, yeah. that's correct. Anyways, we started working on that, and we didn't even write together. He came up with the songs and the words and sang me the melody and said, sing it. And that was the relationship? That's what the relationship became, yes. Is that him, though? Does that story encapsulate what he's about? Not originally. He was very fair and, and easy to write with, easy to work with, easy to talk with. Uh, our communication was good. Our working relationship was exemplary. And when it came time, you know, we had other al- lot of, a few, more than a few albums before that. And if he, w- if he would say uh, uh, 60-40 and I would say 50-50, we, we might split the difference. Right. Or, you know, it didn't seem such a big deal if the split was 5% off one way or the other, you know. But when his was high double digits and mine was low single digits, there was a problem. And if that didn't make you leave the band at that point, I got to ask you what made you leave the first time in 1990? Because he took his wife around the world when we should have been writing and back in the studio and was gone for about 10 months total. And I was full of ideas, and I always wanted to do a body of work that was unencumbered by him pulling rank on me all the time. So I thought it was a good time to see what I was made of. And while he was gone, I talked to Atlantic Record, and they said they would give me a budget. Go ahead and record a solo album. And I did. Was that when Midnight Blue came out? That's right. A great song. Ready or Not. You know that one, Yep, yep. Yeah, there, there was quite a few good songs on that. And when he came back, I think Ready or Not was just starting to fall off the charts a little bit. Atlantic had promised me a third single, and we we had already figured out what it was. And after Ready or Not, suddenly there was no third single. And for, for my friends who worked at Atlantic, they told me he was telling Ahmed Erdogan, the chairman of the board, yeah. that if... Lou's album is successful. There'll be no more Foreigner. So they threw the wrench in my album to protect the Foreigner name. And my next solo album, which came out two years, two and a half years later, the the hit single was Just Between You and Me. Yep. And there was no second single, and there was no promotion. I think it was the same situation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Only wrenched down a little sooner and a little harder. Did he ever talk to you about your solo work? Nope. No. No. Uh, uh, he never. You know, uh, I did well with the singles and stuff. He. He. There was never a congratulations. Right. How about this? 
1991 or 92, I asked the department at Atlantic Records what my sales were. And they said it, it was approximately 430,000 albums sold. So I was about 70,000 away from going gold. Mm -hmm. 17 years later, I asked them what my album sales were. And they said it was about 480,000. So then I was 20,000 away from gold. When I asked them the first time to the, ask them the second time, I mean, a lot of time had gone by. Yeah. You know? And you would have thought that just from repeat airplay and sales and this and that, that, that I would have made that amount up and, and gone gold. I swear to you, I'm determined that Mick made sure with the higher-ups in the company that my album did not go gold. He has that kind of pull. Yeah. He has that wow. kind of pull. And there's no way you yep. get like an accountant to do like a forensic audit to find uh, out exactly uh, what... Uh, I could, but but I, I think the record company would throw a wrench in the works or give me a lot of trouble because then if we found out it was what I thought, it would be a big black eye for them too. Sure. You know, I, I didn't do anything to make that relationship go south. I, I was his loyal writing partner. I'd come up with ideas for songs sometimes and, and I always had trouble getting him to work on my ideas. That's Always had trouble getting him to work on my ideas, or if he did work on them, by the time the song was finished, it sounded like his idea, not mine. Isn't that great? I know. And now he's got Kelly Hansen, who's a good singer, but he's doing you. I mean, it sounds like a foreign tribute band. Yeah, he, you know, he doesn't sound anything like me. He tries to. Well, that's not yet. He's got all the ad-libs down and stuff, but his, his the timbre of his voice is completely different. Oh, yeah. You know, I didn't have anything against him, but I've heard interviews with him with um, big radio stations where in the interview he tells them how he wrote Jukebox Hero. No. Yep. You've heard that yourself? Yes, I have. Mick wasn't there in the interview, but when Kelly left to his own devices, he lost his imagination right away with him. You know, and the worst part is there's a generation of fans that may see them now and not know the truth. I know for a fact uh, the foreigner fans do not like what's going down at all. Well, I had a friend who, when the new band first started playing out, they were playing in uh, Las Vegas. And I had a friend of mine, out of curiosity, go hear them and, and let me know what they sounded like. And um, he, he said that although Kelly's voice is nothing like mine, he mimicked all my ad-libs to the T. It was, it was like all the ad-libs that came natural to me or that I worked on. Yeah. He used every one of them. If ad libs were, were something that could be filed and kept legally, I would have sued his ass. I mean, he's trying to use the same approach that are on the records. Trying. Yeah, but on stage, he's a real, he's a dickhead. <laughs> he dances around on a stupid little dance, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and he talks to the audience like they were three years old. Honest to God, he's, he's, he's not a terrible singer. He's an okay singer, but... but He's not you, and he's not the singer of Foreigner, by any means. No, but he's bad for the band, I think. Do you think he's a yes man, a company man? I thought he was, but, but ever since Mick's been sick, he is the company. Now he tells everybody else what to do, and does all the press. So he, he's telling stories the way he sees them. God, that's got to kill you. It does kill I mean, I know you wrote the book, it sets the story straight, but it's still got to kill you. It, it, it hurts, but it enrages me more than anything. And now you joined them on stage for the 40th anniversary. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was all right, but he was always two steps in front of me and, and kind of walking in front of me. And I'm, I'm ready to sing my part. And I got my mouth open. And he says, Mr. Lou Graham, like nobody knows who I was if he didn't tell him. Yeah, I know. You know, I'm like, will you shut up? please?" <laughs> Have you ever sat down and just talked to him? Uh, briefly. And he, he's attitude heavy. He, he sees himself as the guy that replaced me, you know, like it was a coup and he was the better singer. Now, you stepped away from the role, quote unquote. Yes, I did. You'd been through it. Yep. You've talked quite candidly about the brain tumor. And I want to know how you're feeling. How's your health doing now? My health is good. I, I feel good. Uh, you know, it, it took its toll on me. And, and that's almost 30 years ago now. I take a lot of medication from, from the damage the tumor had done. Sure. My adrenals are defunct. My pituitary works at 25%. Whatever's not working, I'm making up for it w with medication. I know your faith is very important to you. Yes, it is. My God, I mean, you know, what was at the beginning you were told? Inoperable. Yeah, 
three heads of, of brain departments at, at well-known hospitals all told me, the last guy did an MRI, and, and, and he was recommended to me by, by the brain surgeon in Rochester who told me he couldn't do it. I have a friend in New York who is a brilliant brain surgeon. Go see him. I went to see him. He did MRIs. He brought me in his office afterwards, and he says, Lou, he says, I don't know how to say this, but I think you should go home and put your affairs in order. So I, I went home thinking my days were numbered because I was having long and short-term memory lapses, I was having splitting, splitting headaches, worse than any hangover I'd ever had. And I, I didn't know if, if this was the end of my life or not. And I happened to see on the program 2020 a segment about uh, Dr. Black at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston who operates on inoperable brain tumors using laser therapy. So the, the segment was, was very enlightening and, and gave me a lot of hope. And at the end of the segment, he gave his office number. I was on the phone with his secretary at 8 in the morning the next day. And she told me they, they had just had an opening. And could I come in the next day to, to get tests done? So that would have been Tuesday and be operated on, on Thursday. So the opening she had was somebody who died before they could get operated on. That was not lost on me either. So on Thursday morning, about 5 in the morning, they came and got me out of my room and started, started to put me under. And, and I was deep in prayer until I lost consciousness. What was that feeling like when you woke up and realized that you had survived and you made it? So Dr. Black came in and, and started talking to me and, and told me that it was, it was rough going, but, but we, we, got, we got almost all of it. I'm thinking to myself, what does he mean almost all of it? Yeah. So, so Apparently, I had been in the hospital bed after the operation for three days already, unconscious, you know? Yeah. So when I talked to him, he told me how difficult it was. And the operation lasted 19 hours. Wow. And they had to take breaks every three or four hours because they were losing it. It was so intense. So they got all of it, but one little piece caught between two lobes of my brain that they couldn't get. I didn't go home. I stayed for radiation therapy. And that was done nine days in a row. And and when you're done with radiation therapy, every every session you have, you feel like a puddle. I bet. I had my brother there. We rented a furnished apartment. He was there to, to help me. And, and he literally had to put his arm around my shoulder to, to get me to walk down the stairs and into a cab oh after that radiation therapy. And I would I would go home. I would, I would eat some soup or a sandwich. I would lay down on the couch. And I would sleep 12 or 13 hours. I would wake up in the middle of the night. How long did it take before you attempted singing again? The surgeon told me he didn't want me singing for at least two or three years because of the pressure of singing that it put on the brain. Mm -hmm. And I intended to do that. I told our manager that that's what the doctor wanted and that's what I intended to do. He says, you can't do that. He says, when you had your operation, we had to cancel shows in Japan, Australia, and the Far East. He said, those shows weren't canceled. They were postponed. We have to make them up in uh, June. So my operation was in April, early April. I was supposed to sing again for a year and a half. Ten weeks after my operation, I was on a plane to Japan, and then, and then Australia, and then the Far East, and then back home to do a national tour. So I, I never got the time I needed to heal. Funny, the first question I asked you was why you stopping touring now. I mean, geez, you've put your everything into it for almost 50 years. Yes, I have. I have no regrets, but when I feel it's time to stop, there's nobody that can tell me different. Well, is there anything you want to plug? Only that at some point this year there'll be a new album out. been working on it for the last two years. Ten new songs with the Lou Graham All-Stars playing on it. Great. It's good hard rock. Melodic integrity, but it rocks. Not middle of the road, soft stuff. Oversaturated with synth. Yes, that's <laughs> correct. I was going to just say that, but you did it for me. I ain't losing track of which way I'm going 
Seven solo album, Ready or Not, that's Lou Graham with the top five hit, Midnight Blue. And I want to thank Lou for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. He is one hell of a storyteller. If you want to hear more Lou Graham stories, his autobiography, Jukebox Hero, My Five Decades in Rock and Roll, is still in print. And details on how to get yourself a copy are in the show notes. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes, iHeartRadio, YouTube, Spotify, Pornhub, Google Pop... No, that's not right. Tang Tang! Be sure to check us out again on the next episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Feeling down and dirty, feeling kind of mean I've been from one to